Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Yeah, so we're a, a TSX main board listed company. Um, I've been in Mongolia for the better part of 20 years. Went there in the late 90s and um, witnessed an opportunity to explore one of the world's great gold belts and uh, decided this was a place to hang my hat. Early 2000s started the company and fast forward to today, we have three deposits we've discovered in a brand new area that's in one of the world's great gold belts. So we've kind of got a two-pronged approach where we're moving towards production on a simple high-grade open pit deposit at Bayan Hyundai and have a multitude of prospects in the pipeline behind that where we're targeting building up a 2 million ounce resource. So very exciting uh, part of the globe and one that we're, um, we're looking to add significant ounces to. Perfect. Uh, nice introduction, actually. Um, so what's your background? What have you done before? In, in, the con- in the context of making shareholders money. Sure. <laughs> so I'm a geologist that uh, traveled the globe up until, you know, I arrived in Mongolia in the um, in the late 90s. And since that time, have run this company as the uh, chief executive, uh, principal chief executive. Right. OK, so this this is your first and only public company? As a, as a CEO, that's right. Got it. Okay, fine. And what, what, tell me about the rest of the team then. So we've, uh, starting at the board level, we probably have a board that you couldn't replicate in terms of Mongolia experience. So we have Canada's first ambassador to Mongolia, Anna Bielik. We have Cameron McRae, who built the first phase of Tolgoy, a $6 billion build. Uh, Leighton Croft, who was a senior executive in Mongolia, working with various um, uh, significant companies, Ivanhoe, um, uh, Peabody Energy, and there's a number of others on the board. I won't go through them all, but a tremendous depth of experience working in Mongolia. Right. Okay. And you're whatever you sort of circa hundred million dollar company. Why are they excited about working for you? You know, I think there's uh, there's two parts to that, and obviously each board member has a different view. But um, most of the board members recognize the opportunity. If they've been around this business as long as I have, it's very rare to see a gold belt like the Central Asian Orogenic Belt with an unexplored portion where you can make discoveries at surface of the grades we've made. I mean, just from a geologic discovery perspective, I don't know that there's another place on the planet that could replicate that. Um, Our company has a DNA that's um, very much about um, building stakeholder value. You know, we know we need to make investors money, but there's a real strong interest here in making a difference in Mongolia. And I think that is so important to attracting the right type of people to your board. And so we have that good mix of of social consciousness as well as uh, focus on value creation. Okay, I get the ESG bit. I suspect we'll talk about it a little bit more later on. But um, just talk to people about Mongolia because there'll be people that are comfortable with North America. There'll be people that are comfortable with gold um, or, or Africa, whatever whatever they're into. But Mongolia is one of those sort of strange ones. People don't know much about it. So, what's the um, jurisdictional risk, the political scene? You know, who else is there? You know, who else is sure. you know of sizes there? So I think when you look at the uh, the political side, Mongolia came out of the um, socialist um, system in the late 1990s and became a market uh, democratic um, country, market economy democratic country about that time. Um, 
they effectively are the most democratic nation that's come out of that Soviet sphere of influence. There's been repeated change-ups of the parties in power. And so they have proven themselves to follow that uh, the democratic election process. And in fact, there was an election yesterday. Um, the president, new president was elected, former prime minister, Hurl Souk. And I think the key importance there is that when you've seen uncertainty around Mongolia, it's typically related to the election cycles, whether it's parliamentary or presidential. And that's typically because you have the Democrats on one side of that and the MPP party, the ruling party on the other. As of last night, for the first time in over five years, you have the MPP party controlling both the presidency and the parliament. And so I see a period of political stability here as a result of that, that will go on for several years until you run up to the next election. Um, so I feel quite good about that from a political stability perspective. Um, from a fiscal regime uh, on the gold side, you know, quite stable. We have a 5% NSR and a 25% maximum corporate tax rate that stayed pretty consistent over the last decade. Um, I think when you have a, um, a country that has a small population, largely nomadic, you have to be aware of the sensitivities of impacting that when you're building a mine. And that's probably the one thing that you have to um, be very cognizant of when you're going out there for the first time in Mongolia. We've built a team for over 20 years now that's well um, situated and well respected in the communities in which we work for the reasons I talked about at the board level. So, you know, that's a, a quick snapshot of some of the key things on the Mongolia side, but we're very comfortable working in this jurisdiction. In terms of who else is there, obviously Oyutogoy, you know, everybody sees Oyutogoy as the, as the key story coming out of that country, but there's a, a multitude of startup gold companies. I think you've had Step Gold on your program before, Step, uh, quickly went through an acquisition and moved to production. You have two private companies owned by two of the wealthiest families in the world that have started up gold mines in Mongolia in the last uh, several years and their steady state production. Um, and a host of Russian and Chinese uh, companies also active in the country on medium-sized to large-scale uh, zinc, iron ore, coal projects. So there's a, there's a whole host of uh, mining mines that have been built there over the last decade that you don't typically hear about because they're not necessarily associated with Western public companies. Right. And do you think the market has struggled with the Mongolia bit or just your stage of development? Because I'm looking at your, share, your shares, you know, it's been, last year and a half, some moving sideways, I think it's probably fair to say. Is that So is that a factor of where you're at on, let's say, the Lassonde curve? Or Yeah, I don't think there's any question that there's a Mongolian discount. Um, I think, you know, every time the news um, highlights the discussions between Oyutogoy and the government, um, that has an impact and a resultant discount on those companies working in Mongolia. I do think though, as you just said, on the Zon curve side, we are in that period of the trough where people want to see, is that financing coming together, are permits in place, is the construction launched? So we're right there. And, you know, we're able to sweeten that somewhat with the exceptional exploration upside we have, but there's no question that both of those things, Mongolia and um, place in the curve, have some impact on valuation. Cool. That's my next three questions then. How are the licenses, <laughs> permits and financing coming along? Yeah, well, let me, let me speak to that. Um, so on the permitting side, uh, COVID has had an impact largely on the inability to hold public meetings. Our detailed environmental impact assessment is the next major gateway to move to construction, and that requires local gatherings. Um, 
you know, not only have we had the inability to get our people out into the field uh, to meet with people in the local community, you've had a restriction on a number of people that can get together. So you can't have that public gathering. I see that as breaking. I feel pretty comfortable, but by the end of this month, early July, those gatherings will be allowed to take place. And once we pass through that over the summer, we would be submitting and receiving approval for our DEIA that would allow us to move into that construction period later this summer. Um, the construction permitting work is immense, but that's all been going on behind the scenes for the last eight months, um, expertising it with the local uh, regulatory offices. So all of that's ready to go. And I'm feeling very confident about where we are with that process coming to conclusion over the next few months. Immediately upon us having those permits in hand, we would move into early works. And those early works initially are permanent camp, uh, some of the infrastructure on site we need to do a full construction period, um, some of the civils, road works. There, if, if things get pushed too far into winter, um, as you can appreciate, Mongolia has a minus 20 to minus 40 temperature from December till March. So there is some potential delay if we push concrete and steel into that period. But I'd say from our most recent projections of late 2022, we're probably flirting with early 2023 into second quarter 2023 for first gold. Right, That's so Corona's had some impact, uh, had some impact up until now. You think that is fading, but you're, you've got processes in place to mitigate any effect going forward. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I, I think, you know, the key point for investors, stakeholders to look towards is that sort of midsummer passing through local meetings and state level DEIA approval. Right. That's okay. the real key. Okay. Um, so and then to, I can go on on the financing. Yeah, that's, like. yeah, if you don't mind, that's where I wanted to go. So skipping back uh, about a year and a half ago, we had the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development become an uh, investor in the project, initially on a convertible, and they did convert. So they're now owning 11% of the equity. Uh, EBRD, you'd be familiar with, their mandate isn't just commercial, it's to move former socialist countries countries into a market economy. And so they're much more incentivized just to see projects do well, to get them up and running. So they're a great stakeholder supporter to have. They have indicated continued support to be there for the project finance package. But perhaps most importantly is last October, we signed a mandate letter with Export Development Canada. And Export Development Canada has indicated an interest in putting in up to 55 million US of the debt required to build this facility. The CapEx is 59 million straight up. And so that's a the major component we're looking for. Um, with both of these um, development banks, the due diligence periods are lengthy. You know, this is this you probably heard in talking to others that have dealt with development banks. It's a very onerous process. We got through EBRDs and we're now just getting through the due diligence with EDC. Um, I expect that to be wrapped up in the next month or so. And then we start to get amber and green lights for the full debt facility that will be tied up as we move towards the latter part of this year. It's only after I have permits and um, EDC comfort that I'd be looking to fill any void between our cash position today and the EDC debt. Um, and at this point, you know, perhaps it's $10 million, let's say, US that we're looking to fill in that void. Uh, there's a host of opportunities for us, whether it's 
sub-debt, whether it's royalty stream, whether it's straight-up equity or convertible or gold loan, all of those things are on the table. And we're in discussions with multiple parties. But the closer I can get to passing those milestones I just mentioned, as well as having expiration results along the way, puts me in a better negotiating position for whatever I do in the middle. Um, so that sort of comes together later in the summer as well. Today, we're sitting on $8 million in cash, and we have about $3 million of in-the-money warrants and options, so we're not in any um, stressful situation for cash. I, I feel like there's a great appetite out there to fill whatever void we need. It's just us putting management, making sure we do the best job possible to avoid dilution uh, is the... Is yeah, the, for sure. The, yeah, the, the, the low capex really does help. Just some, on, on ADC and EDRB, um, I, I've dealt with EDRB. Um, usually, their terms um, conditional, right? Yes, and you need to meet certain terms. They are quite light-handed, which is great. Mm. But what are those things which may affect your choices with regards to the type of the other type of money that you have to bring in? Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. I think there's more onerous conditions precedent than you see perhaps with commercial banks. But I would say the most critical area is in the environmental and social arena. And I would suggest that we've done an exceptional job in that area. We've been punching above our weight for many years in that front. We um, we have already filed an ESIA with the bank, the um, EBRD last year, and that needs to get posted on their websites. And they take submissions from stakeholders to for which there weren't any significant or any uh, complaints or concerns. We have to go through the same uh, system with EDC. But uh, as I said at the outset, we're in, in a very good position in terms of our ESIA and environmental and social um, support. I don't think, you know, there's nothing else really in those conditions precedent that's out of the norm in terms of commercial banks. I'd say ESG is the, the key. You're right. Yeah, that, that, that's, I think, part of the course with them. Um, with the ghost to, obviously, you're at that point with, you know, coming up for a DFS, right? You Are you going to be, and you get got $8 million cash, yeah. and I get the warrants, you know, they're in the money at the moment. So you, you're kind of good, but are you going to be applying that to any kind of additional exploration work in the meantime, updating the resource or any of that kind of uh, good sure. stuff, just kind of keep the news flow going whilst you're waiting for, to make an investment. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So as you may realize, we made a significant disco- discovery earlier this year we called Dark Horse. Um, we're just really starting to get our teeth into that. And we will mount a phase two program this weekend, drilling at, uh, at Dark Horse. In addition to that, there's a license we acquired 100% interest in late last year called the Ulan license. It's almost directly adjacent to the deposit at Bayan Hyundai. We weren't in a position to drill that previously, at least the gold targets along the western boundary of our deposit, because we didn't hold 100% interest. And so we wanted to get that put to bed. Uh, Through the earlier part of this year, we put in place the permits necessary to move to drilling. So my expectation is that immediately on the heels of starting that first uh, drill at Dark Horse, we'll be moving to a second rig at Ulan as early as mid next week. Uh, That Ulan target is, for me, tremendously exciting because all of our expiration right up to the boundary there suggests that there's continuity of that deposit towards the Ulan southeast corner so very exciting maiden drilling in that area to begin next week okay so i mean so questions sent in here people trying to understand one what well, two questions one uh are the assays up to date have you seen 
all of them come back in? There were 27 holes pending from right. the northern part of Dark Horse. And due to the shutdown in Mongolia and then a delay on lab chemicals, that's been stretched a little bit. But I expect within the next week, we'll have those all in the market. Okay. And then I guess the, the, the big question we've had to send in about a few people, which is um, about the... Um, do you do you think any of these assets will actually join up and become one? Um, right. So, you know, this is a really interesting district in that there's no previous information. You know, you tell people you're in a an area that has been drilled, but there's just no exploration that's taken place here before. So we're putting together the structural architecture for a new district. And the simple answer is yes. We do believe that the structural corridors between the Bayan Hundi and Dark Horse um, deposits and prospects are connected uh, with an interwoven sort of network along the Northeast, all of which have mineralization, but as you'd expect in a district that big, they're not all one big deposit. Um, you have fluids traveling along those conduits and you have to find the unique structural intersection or zone of dilation to find something of significance. But yes, the simple answer is they are connected. Right, you just gotta work out the economics, right. Um, so with regards to, you talked about end of 2022, maybe 2023 getting into production, right? It's quite aggressive, quite nice. So, and the CapEx is low, you, but you're gonna build your own infrastructure. Um, can you talk to us about what was the scale of that? What's, what's the size, what's the output you think from that? Sure, yeah, so we delivered the feasibility late last year. So we've been going through construction readiness uh, for the better part of you know, the last six or eight months. That effectively gets handed over to us by our consulting companies this month. So I feel we're shovel ready. Um, we've already ordered our commutation circuit, the ball mill and sag mill. Uh, we're preparing for other orders. We have a permanent camp ready to be built as soon as we get that permit in place. So a lot of the engineering design work and just preparatory work is in place. You talked about the team earlier. We have a number of people on our team that have built and operated mines in Mongolia previously expats in Mongolia. And so I feel very well prepared to kick this off. The, the build is quite simple. Um, because of the high grade, this is a 3.7 gram per ton head grade, um, producing 60,000 ounces a year, 65,000 ounces a year. So it's a relatively small footprint, 1800 ton per day plant, which is going to cost us 60 million. The parts uh, and equipment are effectively all coming across the border from China. It's off the shelf, more or less. I think the only exception to that is the uh, Aleutian circuit and gold room that comes through South Africa and Australia, but everything else comes out of mostly Cidic in China. Um, we'll move about 600,000 tons of dirt a year to get that 65,000 ounces a year. So again, it's a relatively compact operation. We will have a hybrid solar diesel plant on site to generate power. We have our water reserves already established um, about two kilometers from site. Uh, there's not a need for a lot of external infrastructure, if you will, but we are now only 200 kilometers away from a major coal mining center right at the Chinese border where you have rail and blacktop highways coming into the country. You think back 10 years ago, we were a thousand kilometers from nowhere standing at Bayan Hyundai. Uh, and now with that encroachment of infrastructure coming in from China's thirst for natural resources, Mongolia is really becoming less infrastructure poor, if you will, and it really changes the game out there. So, and just to me, for, for people who haven't yet read the the economics around this, you want to kind of run through some of the numbers? Certainly. Yeah, we're um, we're looking at an OPEX of 733, all in sustaining costs. The uh, the CAPEX is 59 million. 
we're going to uh, generate about $50 million in net free cash flow uh, after tax at $1,800 gold. Right. For how long? Um, NPV at that level is about 215 and uh, IRR is 77%. Right. So what's yeah. the life of mine at the moment? Life of mine is six six years. So it's about eight years all in, start to finish, but six years of production. Right. You would look to, like, do you think, again, is that a factor? Because people use it, oh, give me, it needs to be 10 years minimum. I think it's a factor for those that look in isolation at the feasibility study. But when you take into account that that six years is based on the 1450 gold price used in our feasibility or 1400 there's another 200,000 ounces of gold at about two grams plus sitting in the perimeter of that economic pit there's 200,000 ounces of gold sitting at Altenar our other deposit to the north that's amenable to the CIP plant there's actually half a million there but there's 200,000 we could put into the CIP plant and as we speak as I just mentioned we're we're drilling Dark Horse New Lawn and just to paint the picture at Dark Horse, it's early days, but we have two holes 100 meters apart. And 10 meters from surface, we have 30 to 40 grams of three to five gram material that's oxide. You know, it's, it's just stellar opportunity for finding near surface resources that can immediately be dropped into that plant. And it's on mining license ground that's already under mining license. So how much money are you, or how many meters are you going to have you given guidance for, for this year, for next year? Because obviously exploration is going to be a big part of whether people believe sure. you can scale yeah. this quickly. Yeah, there's a, there's about 6,000 to 7,000 meters that will be drilled here between start next week and mid-July. There's another 4,000 meters in the budget, but the results of these programs will dictate what I go to the board with to look at further uh, meterage. If Ulan or Dark Horse deliver what I think they can deliver, then those programs get expanded significantly. Um, you know, you do have to look at other sources of cash at that point, but obviously exploration success drives share price and that dilution issue becomes less as you move in that direction. Um, so yeah, I think for those, going back to that initial question, there's sitting already in front of us close to half a million ounces of readily available ore we could bring into the back end of that plant. So without stretching my arms at all, we could look at a 10-year operation. It's just not in the feasibility yet. Right, okay. And what is it per meter? What's the drilling cost? This is a very inexpensive place to explore. We're straight up, I think, $87 a meter. Uh, I kind of use a rule of thumb of 200 Canadian for all in assays, um, camp costs, the whole shoot and match. Right. Okay. So you got 7,000 plus maybe 4,000. It's just not yeah. in the studies at the moment, but you are looking to just continually, you know, create more data to allow you to, okay, to make, yeah. potentially maybe go and raise some additional uh, capital yeah. in the market. Okay. There's a, there's about $2 million in the current budget for exploration, but as I say, successful drive the scale of that program. And I'm highly optimistic about what we're seeing in all three of the other project areas, Ulan, Dark Horse, and the Alton Nar prospect to the north, which I didn't speak to much other than mentioning the resource. It's a five kilometer long system where we've only defined a few pits at surface, which have half a million ounces of gold and another 3 million ounces of silver and 200 million pounds of lead and zinc. 
So that's a bit of a different animal, but there's just so much fertility and prospectivity in this area. I don't have any hesitation to say this is only going to grow and have an extended mine life, even without further discoveries at this point. Which so at the, moment, at the moment there is a kind of uh, Mongolia discount pre-production, and I, we haven't done any analysis on the producing company because there aren't that many for start mm-hmm. but um do you expect things to change once you're actually in production because you are throwing off you know 50 what 50 million bucks cash yeah per year. i think but then I what do you do with it good. what do you what do you, what, what what do you do to kind of sustain that kind of growth new growth profile because pre-production mm-hmm. it's it's kind of it's tricky mm-hmm. so there's a few questions in there but going back to how the market reacts i thought they reacted quite well to a re-rating um from a discount you'd expect pre-production to post-production with step you know they went through a two to three times increase in share value pretty much through that process um you know i don't think there's a shortage of investors well the, the number of institutions that will support you once you're in production obviously increases dramatically um, so I see that as an opportunity for a re-rate for us in that two to three times. I think what sets us apart is that exploration upside and making sure that that pipeline continues to produce the opportunities that investors on the retail side want to are attracted to. Um, and that's what we're doing. You know, I see the entire construction period and post-construction as really building a foundation for growth. I I'm focused on this area because of the opportunity to build a multi-million ounce producer, multi-million ounce resource and a much larger producer. And so that's always going to be the theme behind this is we're growing ounces. The 60,000 ounces is a base, a foundation to provide us with leverage to continue to unlock that value. Right. Okay. I think it was, again, someone's asking here, what about a merger with STEP? I guess you want to be in control of your own destiny, do you? <laughs> Well, you know what? I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't always look at opportunities that are accretive to shareholders. And, um, you know, STEP is is an opportunity for a merger and country that gives you economies of scale. What I'm biased by is I've worked for 30 years as a geologist and I've never seen the upside that I see in this district. And so how do you how do you part with that at a discount at current valuations? You know, we're building value based on future discovery. And I think we have an exceptional opportunity to do that. So it's hard to give up that, uh, unless that there's equal opportunity on the other side. And I, I've worked hard to find this. You know, I've worked in South America, throughout Asia and the Americas, and I haven't seen as prospective an area for near surface high grade gold and copper deposits as I have in this district. How's the GNA? Because you've got a really big team, certainly a really big board, management team, et cetera. So how are you managing to keep that? Pretty down? good. You know, um, we're probably running around $160,000 a month in all in GNA costs. Most of the board take their compensation in deferred share units. Um, you know, as we build this team from what was an explorer to a developer producer, there's different pay scales that you have to be cognizant of. We haven't quite tipped into that yet, but you will see a increase in that GNA that'll probably become quite significant or material as we move into the latter part of this year and early next. We're not quite there yet, but at this point, uh, quite manageable. Okay. So it's always difficult when you kind of move through the phases, kind of keep that down. Yeah. Especially, right, especially when a lot more cash flows in. Um, okay, let's let's look at um, coverage actually, because the, the markets is the side of this again. Coming back to that Mongolia thing, because not a lot of the analysts want to look over 
over in the east when there's a lot going on back home. So <laughs> how are you managing that? Because obviously you're up in Nova Scotia, um, you know, the guys that you want to be talking to, Vancouver and Dan in Toronto. Um, yeah. Are you going to get much more coverage? I have to say it is a bit of a challenge given uh, where we're located. We have um, Don McLean at Paradigm has been a long time uh, analyst covering the story and uh, perhaps one of the most respected uh, analysts on the street in Toronto. Um, we have um, been on a watch list uh, of Laurentian and, you know, I keep a number of analysts briefed. Uh, so I expect as we get closer to passing through this milestone and be looking at production, we'll see some other analyst coverage come out. But yeah, I'd be, to, to be blunt, it's, it's a challenge to get additional coverage. Yeah, you're not, quite, you're not quite of the size yet and the liquidity is not quite there either. So it makes it difficult yeah. for them. Yeah, there's, there's no shortage of interest, uh, particularly, I'd say, on the expiration side. Um, you know, it's hard to get, well, it's hard to get retail investors or analysts excited about building a 60,000 ounce mine. I think they're excited by the cash flow opportunity here, but it really is the expiration upside that is, uh, is what investors are looking for. And, and we deliver that. I think people will be uh, interested when we start to come up with the Ulan results. And obviously, Dark Horse is a very sizable prospect that we'll be exploring for years. Um, but yeah, there's some good news to come on that front in the very near future. Good, good, good. Okay, well, look, Peter, nice first introduction and overview of the, of the story. Do come back on and maybe we'll get stuck into one of, one of the... Uh, projects, uh, the assets, and sort of see how you're actually approaching it, approaching it on the ground too. So uh, thanks very much. And you have to get your jab soon, aren't you? Mm, yeah, it's going to be happening in a couple of weeks and I can get back on a plane and actually get back here without quarantine. So there you yeah, go. It's all there you go. Fantastic. You can tell us all about it. Um, okay, appreciate your time. We'll speak soon. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.